children are leaving, some of them would be like, yes, no message. Um, but uh, we're going we're gonna to read through Romans 6, and, uh, and, then, and then we'll pray. Um, I, uh, I admire the way in which our continued focus on the mission and our desire not to talk endlessly about money produces uh, the kind of awkwardness of giving a financial report on, on what happened last week. Jerry and I always talk about how, how strange it is to say, like, thank you for giving. Please don't stop giving. Um, and, uh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's good. Um, I once heard a pastor answer the question. Somebody asked him how to be rich. And he said the Bible teaches that the best way to be rich is to be rich in good works. And so the encouragement uh, that I have for you this morning as my brothers and sisters in Christ is, is continue and excel still more. Uh, Romans chapter 6 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of sin of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness 
I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now you present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit? were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us from your word. We thank you for the grace that you show to us, Lord. We thank you for the mercy that is so abundant and rich in Christ. We thank you that though you are holy and could choose to send us all away eternally, these busted and broken creations which you made but which defy your will and refuse to obey from the heart, you could righteously dismiss us all for all eternity to enjoy none of your blessings or benefits, but instead you choose to show kindness to us. We pray, Lord, that as we hear your word, we would not forget the foundation of the gospel, the work of of Christ for us, because it is easy when we hear the standard of holiness preached to suddenly think that we are now being judged by our works. And so I pray that you would help us to remember Romans 1 through 3 and Romans 4 through 5. As we come to Romans 6 and hear of your standard, and we pray that we would walk in the goodness of the gospel and we would hold fast to it, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I had an opportunity to, uh, to travel down to the seminary that I graduated from in 2003 and to, uh, to teach a class, a single class session, of a larger class that one of my, I'm saying the word class a lot, one of my classmates uh, was teaching. Uh, Dr. Raphael Anzenberger uh, is from France and is a, uh, a, a, what I would call a serial church planter. Uh, he has started multiple churches and, uh, and set them free to grow and, and to do their work. And he's finishing up a degree and um, you know just, just sharpening himself. And so he's teaching a class that he calls engaging the secular mind. Um, that what, what his, his contention is that, that people have split their view of the world and of the universe into two categories, right? There is the sacred, which for many who are secular, they describe as the imaginary or the superstitious. Um, and then there are those who believe in the sacred, that there is order beyond what we can see, that there is a God and that there is deep meaning. Um, 
And so he's talked about secularism in a, a number of different environments, and he said, would you come and, and, and teach? Sure, what do you want me to talk about? He said, I want you to talk about secularism in the church. The idea that people come into the church having lived out in the world for the, pre private, uh, the prior six days, and that they have come into the church and that they have a mind which has been filled and fed on secular thinking for most of the week. And then what is the task of the pastor? How does the, the pastor minister? And so I, I, I talked about a lot of things that we talk about here. We, do, we talked about the word of God. We talked about uh, the value of treating all of Scripture as if it's important. And that means using the teaching passages in the New Testament, but it also means not leaving the stories of the Bible, stories, historical accounts of the lives of people, not leaving them buried as if they are just for children, but, but lifting them out and, and pointing people to them and saying, this is the way the people of God behaved and this has deep meaning to you. And so then I started talking about, um, with them about the idea that the, the main story ought to be at the center. The story of Jesus going to the cross and his resurrection and to make sure that that is, is the focus in the center. Uh, many of the students that are there are, are planning to go to the mission field or they're planning to work in different kinds of nonprofit Christian ministry or they're going into education or they're going into uh, all, all kinds of different things. And, and the, the, the occupation of their mind can be, I'm going out and transforming or redeeming the culture. It's good, go and do that work, but make sure the gospel remains at the center. And then I, uh, I started talking to them about leveraging every single idea that you can lay hold of, grabbing hold of every bit of thinking and every cultural pop facet and song lyrics and movies and these kinds of things and shoving them into your preaching and teaching. Why? Because they provide opportunities for people to reconnect with your message. What do you mean about that, they're asking. Like, how do you keep your, your message from turning into, um, you know, just uh, doing sermon series about the latest movies? And I said, we don't do that, but we, we talk about stuff that people understand. Well, what do you mean? And I said, well, what, what does Jesus tell his disciples when he sends them out? He sends them into the village, right? And he sends them to preach the gospel, and there are going to be people who receive them, and there are going to be people who are going to seem to be followers, but the soil isn't going to, the seed is not going to penetrate into the soil, and they're, they're going to be rejected eventually. Those people are going to fall away. They're going to be driven away. And so what should the disciples do? As this is how you connect culture to your sermon. You say, the cultural prophet Taylor Swift has said <laughs> that the haters are going to hate and the fakers are going to fake, but I'm just going to shake, shake, shake it off. <laughs> shake it off, off, off. <laughs> what do we do with unbiblical ideas? What do we do with the fact that many of us struggle on a deep level with some unbiblical concepts? 
As you come in to, to, to worship this morning, this is, this is what I believe. There is a response to the, to the message of the gospel that says that is true and I believe it. But there is a, a, a piece of you inside that perhaps is, is holding back from fully embracing it. Because is it possible that it really works this way? Am I justified? Am I right before God? We have explored that in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. And yet, as we continue to struggle with sin in this life, we often think things like, maybe I'm not really saved. When the scripture says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? The scriptures say in the, the book of First John that we can know that the things that we have been taught are true. Right? The scriptures say that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet, so many times we fall into this idea that there is a sin in our lives that is too powerful to overcome, or that, or that when we, we fail, we've somehow rendered ourselves unsaved or outside of, of God's good grace, and now he is angry and judging us and going to send us away. What is the response to that? I would say this, continue to shake it off. Continue to shed that idea. Continue to fight back against it, not with your best hopes and dreams, right? The kinds of things that you gather from super saccharine gospel preaching that's not really gospel preaching. Not the kind of stuff that you see posted all over Instagram, positive thoughts sent to all of humanity about their basic goodness. Not stuff that you see at the end of a Hallmark movie, right? I think they have a Hallmark channel, and they just, they just ordered like 64 new Christmas movies for 2018, I heard. Can you, can you imagine? Anyway. Anyway. What we're to use to separate ourselves from bad and unbiblical ideas is this. The bond-breaking word of God joined up with the power of the Holy Spirit to instruct and to teach us in the way that's right. Now, I once heard Pastor Chuck Swindoll say that he would rather someone understand the foundation of the gospel and misunderstand the call to Christian living rather than misunderstand the work of Christ on their behalf and then hear the standard. Does that make sense? Right? We, don't, we don't want to forget the truth of who we are in Christ and then say, I'm going to go out and live a holy life to earn God's affection because that is impossible. But what we're called to do is to understand that we are truly saved by our faith and trust in Christ, that our sin is canceled out, and then God calls us to live a holy life. Is the gospel a free pass to sin? No. Potentially, the implications of the first five chapters of Romans would say, yes, you are free. You are absolutely free. 
You are freed from your sin. The bonds are broken. You are saved. You are in Christ. You are united with him. You will never be separated from God's love. And then we can say, wow, I can continue in sin and God's grace will abound and abound and abound. Potentially that is true, but Paul asks this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Think about the logic here, right? If God is magnified and glorified by showing grace to sinners, and that's what he does, right? Paul celebrates this in the passage that was, that was read uh, at the beginning of the service. God being rich in mercy, you know, God is celebrated because of his grace towards sinners. Can I increase God's glory and his grace by partnering with him. Think about this. I will sin, and he will forgive, and he will be seen as more gracious. So I'll just keep on sinning. Right? Paul says, by no means. May it never be. That is a a broken understanding. We ought to leave that idea behind. How can we, he says, who died to sin still live in it? Now he says live in it. He doesn't say occasionally fall into it, right? He doesn't say uh, in, a, in a moment of, of, of struggle, fail. What he says is live in it, build our house there, make our home there. Verse 3, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here's what is going on. Let me describe this by means of a story, the most important story. You were separated I was separated from God because of my sins. There was a a great gulf between what God demands of me and my performance. And I could never do enough good works. I could never throw enough good things into that chasm, into that gulf, to ever build a bridge. And so God built a bridge for me. He sent his son to take my sin upon him. Jesus went to the cross taking my sin. He died and rose again. And that's the the most important story, isn't it? That he lives to intercede for me. We sung and we celebrated that. But something else is going on there that many times we forget. When Jesus died for our sins, we died with him. There is a a teaching in the scriptures. Theologians call it union with Christ or identification with Christ. God is able to declare us as righteous and just because he sees us as connected to Jesus. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now there are two pieces in in, in this equation here that I want to focus on. The first one is this. He died for our sins, and when he did, we died to our sins. Because we were there with him spiritually on the cross. 
He was raised due to his innocence and his perfection. And the passage says he was raised for our justification. And we are raised with him. We walked formally, though we looked alive, we were dead spiritually, and we were unable to please God with any of our actions because they were all tainted and thoroughly filled with sin. But when Jesus is raised, we are raised with him from our deadness to walk in newness of life. Now, when it comes to shaking off sin and shaking off bad conceptions of who we are, this idea like God is always angry at me, God's looking at me through a magnifying glass. Man, he is just, he is, he's like, love everyone and love me and all will be well. But over here in this hand, man, he's got that lightning bolt and he is ready. You know, he's like this, like, be blessed. You know, and I'm like, I'm blessed. And then I, I stumble and he's like, wow, right? That's, that's, that's the, the, the tightrope that we walk. We think like, man, I could fall off this thing at any second and I will be destroyed. Stop looking at yourself through that lens. That is the warped lens of the world and the flesh and the devil that you keep putting on over and over and over again because you, you can't conceive of anything being different. I have this problem uh, that, that comes from wearing glasses. And it's that I don't often think about the fact that I wear glasses until I can't find them. And so here's what happens. I, I wake up and I put them on. I go to sleep, I take them off. I wake up, I put them on, you know, and occasionally I'll take them off to like read something and then I'm like, I'll put them someplace where I won't forget them, like on top of the refrigerator. And I'm like, why did I do that? Anyway, that's, that's yeah, I can't see, yeah. But here's what will happen. Nancy will occasionally say to me, or she will just grab for my face and she will take my glasses and she will like wash them under the sink. And then she puts them on and now by this time, after being married this many years, it's become a game. I'm like, wow, I can see. <laughs> there are all kinds of stuff out in the world that like gets attached to your glasses. It blinds your vision. You need to look at yourself. I need to look at myself through the lens of what Scripture says about me. And this is not the lens of what a book says about me. These are the very words of God written by God's chosen, moved by the Holy Spirit. These are the words that God speaks to us that we might know who we are and know what we are called to you? Do you see yourself as born dead to God and then raised united with Christ? Jesus identified with us in our humanity. The Bible says he was numbered among the transgressors. John couldn't understand. You're coming to me for baptism? Why, why do you need to be baptized by me? I should be baptized by you. But Jesus was there not identifying as a sinner, which is what John was confused about. Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners. Because we need to be linked and connected to someone who is righteous. We 
identify with him in baptism because we are dead and we must symbolically die and be raised with him because that's what's really happening on the cross. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. Do you believe this is the way that God sees you? You may need to keep cleaning the lens over and over and over again. I love that new song we're singing. Thank you, worship team. The line that I noticed this morning, because like, you know, last week was, uh, it was Easter and we're talking about the resurrection. It's like the big high holy day of the church, no matter what you think about high holy days. But I don't really pay attention to much. I'm just kind of, I'm like, I'm singing and it's not registering because I'm like, I got to preach, got to preach, it's Easter. Um, so, so this morning we were singing it. I'm like, I love this. This is good, you know, like my soul. And then, and then. We sang the line, I preach the gospel to myself. That's what we got to do. We clean the lenses. We clean them off. This is the way that God sees you, identified with Christ. So what does this union look like? What does it accomplish? What has God done? Paul says, that, that in the union of us with Christ, we are identified with him in his death. That, that he becomes us symbolically, and we become him. That, that, that we are united to him in his righteousness, and he is united to us in our sin. He hasn't done anything wrong, but he takes them upon himself and he dies. We symbolize this in baptism, but it occurs in reality, spiritually on the cross. My dad had this friend when I, when I was young. Uh, they used to work together at uh, IBM, which I don't know what they do now, but when my dad was working there, they were, they were big on photocopiers and computers. My dad was in the photocopier division, and uh, so he and Howie Lodestat worked together, and uh, my dad was significantly younger than Howie, and Howie, I'd go over to Howie's house, and he would like, uh, he'd hand me a bucket, and he'd say, you can have anything you want out of the garage, you know, and, and I'd like walk through, and he'd convince me to like take a bucket of junk, like trash, and he would say, these are all your treasures, and my dad would be like, what are you doing, you know, and I'd be like, dad, these are my things, like, you know, I was cleaning his garage for him, um, but he would always look, and he would say, you're the spitting image of your dad, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, can't deny this kid, and then he, in, a, in that real awkward, you know, if you've ever talked to somebody who's significantly older than you and you don't want to be, you don't want to mess it up, you know, you don't want to be rude and you're like, kind of don't know what to say. He did this thing where he would say, you're a chip off the old block. And then he'd repeat it twice more, a chip off the old block. And I'm like, yeah, but then I was interrupting and he's like, a chip. And I'm like, too much, you know, like, stop. <laughs> but this is the way that I remember and see him as saying, you and your dad. Like, I see you as alike. Union with Christ means this, that when Christ died, you were there with him. When he was raised, you were there with him. When God raised him from the dead and gave him 
life again, reunited his life with him because his life could not be taken away from him because he was righteous and perfect. You became a partaker in that. Your sins are forgiven, yes, but to stop there is to not embrace the full story and the full idea. We are also identified with him in his life, and that means that we are spiritually alive. The old self, the self that is enslaved to sin, died on the cross. It was crucified there. Jesus didn't just go to the cross with his righteous blood to pay off our sin. He does that. But he also went to the cross that he might take our sinful fallen self upon himself and that the piece of us that is dominated by sin and ruled by sin and must sin and must obey sin, that died there with him. That's what the scriptures say. We know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I had an experience a couple of years ago. Somebody came, uh, I think we were having a cup of coffee, and, uh, and this guy said, I am afflicted by the devil. Not like the exorcist kind of afflicted by the devil, but he was like, the devil comes at me, and he attacks me, and he tempts me, and he, like, uh, he, he'll, he'll run me down, and he said, and, and he's just, it's, he's too powerful, I can't overcome him. And in one of those bold confrontational moments that I always feel like, oh, too far, too far, um, I said, you don't have a devil problem. I said, you have a trusting God problem. The scriptures say in the book of James that if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Not he might. Not you need to turn it up and, and have, you know, have eaten your Wheaties and, and have done your quiet time and have prayed 17 prayers and put the armor of God on and all this stuff. Not, not you need to cast some kind of magic spell or have holy water on you or any of that stuff. That's not what the Bible says. It says, if you resist, he will. So we either trust God or not. Now, you may struggle with your desires and with your patterns and say, I can't stop sinning. But that's not a sin problem. That's a trusting God problem. Because if we have put our faith and trust in him, not only does forgiveness of sins flow to us, but our old self is crucified. It is dead. And we are freed from slavery. One who has died has been, Paul says in verse 7, set free from sin. If we have died with Christ, and that's what Paul is saying happens there, we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. What does that mean for us then? It means that the self that is crucified, that is dead, cannot come back to life and enslave us again. He is dead to sin and alive to God, and we are in him and united with him. We're alive to God, 
and we're dead to sin. But we must consider that this is true. Do you see that in verse 11? So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because what Paul is saying here is that the weak link is whether we believe it's true or not. Right? I gave my classic new to them. Maybe you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. <laughs> Example about the Dunkin' Donuts gift card. And then I took it up another notch, and I believe I offended a student, but I talked to him later, and he was fine. And I said, Starbucks is trash. <laughs> you know, that's like hip kid lingo that, that happens in my house occasionally. They're like, this, this ball team's trash, you know? And I'm like, don't talk about them that way, but I don't think they mean it. I think they just mean they're not very good, not like that we ought to, yeah, anyway. So I said, Starbucks is trash. I said, but Dunkin' Donuts is where it's at. And one kid was like, woo, and everybody else was kind of like, but I said, if somebody gives me a gift card and they say, thank you, Keith, for being Keith. We love you. Here, 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 here you go. Then, then, then what I'm going to, somebody gave me a Starbucks card, by the way, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Um, and Nancy likes Starbucks, so she used that. So um, if I, I could, I could take two views. I could say, you know what? They probably used it all up and then gave me the plastic empty shell to mock me. <laughs> or I could say, let's see what's on here. And I go, and I boldly proclaim to the lady behind the counter that I would like a medium cup of coffee with cream and some unsweetened sweetener, um, which is where I live right now. So, you know, and then she hands me the coffee and I hand her the card or I swipe it myself and it's like, two dollars and then I have it why because I believe that there's there's value there this is the way that we begin to conquer and break patterns of sin is to believe what this scripture say that we are no longer alive to sin and dead to God but we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus we need to know this and see ourselves through this lens and so when we say things to ourselves like, I can't stop, I can't resist, I can't overcome, this is too big, you know, I've gone too far, God will never forgive, we need to see the song as written for us. Some, and I want to say this with love, you have the devil's songs on your playlist. You have the world's songs on your playlist. You are still listening to the same old music in your head that you listened to when you were far from Christ. And I don't mean on your iPhone, I mean in your soul. You say things like, I'm bad, I'm a sinner, I have no power, I must obey my desires, I'm weak. Take those records and break them. Burn them. Not physically, I don't mean like take your whatever records. There was a, a Christian rocker years ago who said, if you truly believe that demons burn or live in, in, in record albums, he's like, and you're gonna take like that dark music album and you're gonna, you're gonna burn it, he's like, the demon will escape from that and maybe it'll go and like land in a Neil Diamond album. <laughs> and who's ever gonna burn that? You know, he was like, stop it, people. How do we engage the secular mind? This belief that we have no power over sin is not spiritual. 
It is embracing a lie. We engage the mind of the believer with scripture and with power from the spirit. We tell them what I want you to hear right now. This is who you are. You are dead to sin and alive to God if you have put your faith and trust in Christ. And so Paul says now that we are called to take up arms. We are called to inspect ourselves and to look at our physical self and say, I am going to engage this battle since I have been given the resources. Let not sin therefore. Talk about an awkward English construction, but that is good translation there. You know, don't let sin reign in your body. Why? Because of what we just said, because you are alive to God and dead to sin. Don't let sin reign to make you obey its passions. It can't. It's dead. It can only intimidate you if you think it can. Have you ever been like startled or scared by like a little tiny sissy frou-frou dog? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, oh, what is that? And then you're like, go away, thing. You know, like, you know, and it runs. I've done that. Not to any of your animals, you know, to animals that are far, far, far away from here. Um, but man, I'm just like, you're not going to push me around, you shrimpy little thing. Don't let sin reign to make you obey its passions. This does not mean that, that the battle is not real and that it's not significant. It means that you have been given the resources to triumph. Don't present your members to sin, talking about the physical pieces of your body as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Look at this promise here in verse 14. You can read this in two ways, through the lens of failure and condemnation, or you can see it as a promise from God through the Holy Spirit, a promise of your victory. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Sin deserves no crown in your life because it has no right to rule and reign over you because it was your kingdom once but you have been as colossians say transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of god's beloved son sin deserves no worship or honor because we no longer live in that kingdom we died there and we were raised in a new place sin deserves no worship for god alone is worthy of worship Sin deserves no attention because these instruments, once designed as implements of war against God, are now tuned to sing the praises of God's mercy and God's grace. Sin deserves no response. We no longer live in the kingdom of law and condemnation of death, but under the reign of grace. We will fail if we don't believe these things are true we will fail over and over and over if we don't consider that they are true. And we need to fight back as if they are true, because they are. We must trust God knowing that we are true. And so we need to ask the question, who do I present myself in service to? 
Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whom you obey, you worship. Obedience is not the way that we earn God's affection. Obedience is not the way that we preserve our righteousness. Our righteousness is preserved by Christ and the power of the Spirit and the good will of God who is rich in mercy and grace and kindness. But obedience is an act of worship. I know for many, the condemnation tension in this area is so great. If I sin, God will hate me. And so I need to be good. Jesus took your sin. And so we're called to embrace pursuing holiness with boldness and with joy. Doing wrong led to a piling up of condemnation. Paul will say that the wages of sin, the thing which rightly comes to us because of our sins, is death. But now we've been set free from our sin and put on a path of doing right, of pursuing right, leading to a piling up of purity and proper growth. What it says here that we're to present our members, our instruments as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So as we close, let me look at this last section and encourage you in this way. What kind of fruit do you want to grow in your life? What kind of seeds are you planting? What Paul says is when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, right? You know, like we were slaves to sin, and that means we could only sin. We could not consistently choose to do the right thing. And you know what that means? That means that all the righteousness that we ever tried to accomplish didn't, didn't mean anything, didn't accomplish anything. Why? Because we were dead to righteousness. So we were free, Paul says. That's bad. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things which you are now ashamed? Bad fruit, right? Imagine if I was like, I'm going to plant an orchard. And you were like, cool, that'll be cool. What are you going to plant? And I'm like, poisonous fruit. <laughs> and you can all have as much as you want. Paul's like, okay, think about it, folks. What kind of benefit do you get from that? What kind of benefit do you get from pursuing and embracing sin? What it does is it creates a road that leads you further away from God and alienates you from him and brings increased sense of condemnation. Instead, instead of pursuing them and pursuing death, now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God who treats his people right, he treats his Servants as if they are sons. Now the fruit that we get leads to sanctification. And its goal is not death, but eternal life. You're bound by the seeds that you plant. This isn't about avoiding doing wrong for fear of punishment as much as it is embracing doing right because that is what we have been created for. That is what brings God joy and ultimately will bring us joy. It's not just resisting what's wrong, but loving what's right. It's not just forsaking sin, but delighting in righteousness. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. Why would we continue to work for it? Why would we continue to live there? Why would we continue to serve it? Instead, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
I was telling our adult Bible study this morning at 9.30, um, a bunch of you could be there. Um, so I was talking to them about years ago. I said, I said to, a, um, to one of my professors, I feel like holiness is this rope, like at the circus, strung between two platforms, and it's so easy to fall off. I said, but, but here's, okay, stick with me. Here's my thinking. I said, the gospel is like my safety net to, to protect me from when I fall. And he said, I can see that. But how about this? How about the tightrope is on the ground? How about the tightrope is on the ground? And now it's just the direction you're supposed to walk. The gospel means this. Your sin is truly, totally, ultimately, no question, canceled out, dealt with. Jesus took it. He was punished. He died for it. And now we have been united with him and raised with him. Why then would we not say from the heart, God, teach me to obey you in all things. Teach me to love you and have joy in what's right. Teach me to come to you ashamed of my desires and my bad actions, but coming to you and saying, thank you for being so good. Teach me to walk in righteousness, to stay on the path and to pursue his grace and his goodness, not for fear of punishment, but because he is good. Have you ever just wanted to do something good for someone who's nice to you with with no expectation of anything in return, you're just like, man, thank you for being you. I love you. I want to honor you for what you've done. That's the way that we ought to treat our Father. And so be free. Be free, people of God. Be free from sin. It will not be easy. You will need to clean your glasses, but you know where to live, right here in Romans 6 when the battle is thick. Shake it off. Do the hard work of separating yourself from ideas which are not biblical and do it for God's glory and for your joy and because we were created to delight in our Father and our Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thankful for what you've given to us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters, and I thank you for the truth of the gospel. I thank you that we can have honest conversations, that we don't need to come into this place and act like we're all perfect and we never do anything wrong. We acknowledge it, that we fall short and we fail and we sin. And I thank you that the gospel is there to meet us. I thank you that the good news is there to say that Christ paid the price, but it is also there to say that we can be free, and it's not an empty word. There is power there. We thank you for this good news. Father, I pray that, that in all things that, that the standard that we pursue would be to delight your heart and not to earn something from you that we cannot earn. You freely give it. To pay you for it would be an insult. 
And so we come before you, Lord, right now. I'm sure there's some who have to do some kind of business with you to say, I'm sorry. This is wrong. I yield it to you. But the next move is then to believe that you are gracious and kind and you forgive and cancel out and you receive with joy. You end the conversation with a hug and an invitation to remain in your grace and in your kindness forever. Because we never left. Because we receive it from Jesus when we are raised with him. So, Father, I pray that we would fight to believe that this is true. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is feeling condemnation for their sins because they do not know that you are for them, I pray that they would simply put their faith and trust in Christ right now, that he is sufficient, 